Hello and welcome to the Securities Compliance Podcast presented by the National Society of Compliance Professionals, where it is our mission to help you put compliance in context. I'm your host, Patrick Hayes, partner at the Calfee Law Firm. And on today's show, we take a look at one of the most talked about subjects over the last 12 months, namely artificial intelligence, and further examine the benefits and impact of AI on your firm's compliance program. In our headline section, as if there was ever any doubt, we'll review the recent final rulemaking from the SEC detailing new requirements on private fund advisors. And finally, we'll wrap up today's show with another installment of History Has Your Back, where an ancient Japanese artistic practice and related philosophy can perhaps teach us a new way to look at how to deal with the private fund rulemaking. Diving into the headlines portion of the show, on August 23rd, the SEC adopted significant new regulation of private fund advisors under the Advisors Act, as well as other requirements that apply to all SEC registered investment advisors. The final rules included a number of modifications to the original proposal. Specifically, the new rules require the following items for private fund advisors. A quarterly statement rule, thus SEC registered private fund advisors are required to distribute a quarterly statement to all private fund investors. This must include information concerning fund performance, fund expenses, and payments to the advisors. There are also different requirements between liquid and illiquid funds, something else you'll want to make sure to pay attention to. The additional rules require that an audit be performed. So, private fund advisors are required to have their funds obtain an annual audit in compliance with the requirements under the custody rule, Rule 20642. With regard to secondaries, the SEC registered private fund advisors must obtain either a fairness opinion or evaluation opinion when offering existing fund investors the option between selling their interest in a private fund or converting or changing their interest in the private fund for interest in another vehicle advised by the advisor or any of its related persons. With regard to preferential treatment, all private fund advisors are subject to a general restriction on providing preferential treatment to investors with regard to either redemptions or information as to fund holdings, subject to very limited exceptions and to investor disclosure requirements. So there's no longer a prohibition, but there is there are limited exceptions and uh, must be there must be proper disclosure. This requirement does, however, have a legacy exemption to the extent that the relevant agreements have been entered into before the rules compliance date. As it relates to restricted activities, all private fund advisors are prohibited from charging a variety of regulatory litigation and investigation expenses related to the advisor back to the fund subject to certain conditions. Advisors are also subject to restrictions as to the allocation of deal expenses, and they cannot borrow from or lend to a fund without consent from the fund investors. Uh, This restricted activities rule is also subject to the same legacy uh, exception that was referenced above. In addition, all registered investment advisors, not just those who advise private funds, are now going to be required to document their annual review of their compliance policies and procedures. A couple other important items to note. The requirement as to documentation of compliance procedures will take effect 60 days after publication in the Federal Register. The other rules take effect either 18 months or 12 months after such date, depending on the rule and the size of the fund. Investment advisors uh, to securitized asset funds are subject only to the compliance rule. 
What did the commissioners say about this? Well, as you might expect with such a seminal rulemaking, the comments were robust. Uh, SEC, pardon me, SEC Chair Gary Gensler stated that the final regulations, quote, promote greater competition in thereby efficiency, end quote, in the private funds market. He went on to note that the final rules incorporated a significant amount of public feedback, including one, allowing more flexibility to offer preferential treatment, uh, adding uh, to they added the legacy provision regarding preferential treatment and restricted activities and allowing advisors to satisfy the annual audit requirement by complying with the current custody rule. Similarly, Commissioner Crenshaw applauded the final regulations for, quote, recalibrating the baseline for private fund investor disclosures and building guardrails around certain highly conflicted transactions, end quote. SEC Commissioner Lisa Raga stated that by, quote, reforming oversight of current practices, end quote, for investment advisors, the, the SEC was essentially leveling the playing field for investors of all shapes and sizes. He also went on to say that the final regulations would provide more information for investors to make decisions by addressing what he considered to be opaque and anti-competitive practices. On the other side of the coin, Commissioner Ueda argued that the final regulations are arbitrary and capricious and that they imposed requirements that are far more border, far more burdensome and restrictive for sophisticated investors than even some of the products that are distributed for retail investors. He also criticized the final regulations for relying on what he uh, termed, quote, questionable statutory authority and failing to consider the aggregate impact of the regulations proposed in the past year. The most scathing rebuke from the commissioners came from Commissioner Hester Peirce, who called the rules, quote, ahistorical, unjustified, unlawful, impractical, confusing, and harmful, end quote. She went on to argue that the current regulatory regime demonstrates that the sophistication of the parties, uh, pardon me, that demonstrates the, quote, sophistication of the parties and the dynamism of the advisor population, end quote, but that the SEC justified its rulemaking by dismissively recasting the private fund investors as being relatively unsophisticated. She also raised the question of why the rulemaking is necessary and stating that the SEC struggled throughout the rulemaking process, including in the final rules, to really illustrate any kind of failed market desperately in need of a more prescriptive regulatory regime. Finally, she also went on to say that if the SEC had been able to show that the prescriptive, that the prescriptive regulations were warranted, there would still be authorization from Congress to proceed with the rulemaking, saying that the SEC's reliance on the Advisor Act sections 2064 uh, and 211H is questionable, especially given that the statutory provisions are, quote, clearly aimed at retail investors' relationships with their financial professionals. Finally, Ms. Peirce contended that while the final regulations are better than the proposal, the release did also raise implementation challenges, including an ambiguous definition of terms, operational difficulties of providing advance notice of preferential treatment and obtaining investor consent, and, quote, the chilling of communications between advisors and investors as well as the short compliance period for implementation. Ms. Pierce asserted that the SEC is effectively squelching competition that will ultimately harm investors, advisors, and the economy. As we move into the interview section of today's show, I'm incredibly pleased to welcome in Mr. Mark Gilman. 
Mark is the general counsel and vice president of compliance at Theta Lake. He brings a wealth of experience to the investment management industry and to discussing this incredible topic of AI and how it impacts compliance. At Theta Lake, he advises on technology, privacy, and product strategy. Uh, he's also an adjunct professor at Fordham University School of Law, which I didn't know that. We actually have that in common. Not at Fordham. I'm at the University of Cincinnati, but, but he teaches a, he teaches a a course on uh, compliance technology and financial services. Uh, prior to joining Theta Lake, Mark held uh, lots of different legal and compliance roles, including Morgan Stanley, and he was also uh, a litigation associate at Schiff Harden. Uh, Mark, super excited to have you on the show. Super excited to talk about this again. I think a really interesting, you know, contemporary topic that I think a lot of compliance officers are really starting to uh, uh, dig into around how to approach AI and what is its impact on compliance. But again, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on uh, the show today, being so generous with your time and a very, very excited uh, to have you. Yeah, thanks so much, Patrick. Really appreciate it. And the opportunity to, to have the chat around AI. Looking forward to it. <laughs> So, as we dive into the conversation proper, I think one thing that might be helpful for a lot of our listeners is to hear a little bit about your background and kind of how you got into the space generally. I think you obviously uh, uh, have, as a result of your work experiences, I think a really unique perspective on this topic that involves um, a crossover between several different fields. And so I think that's obviously something valuable, certainly something that Theta Lake uh, thought was very valuable, but would love to hear uh, a little bit about your background and and how you got involved in the space. Yeah, sure. So um, I was an English major in college, uh, graduated and actually went to work in technology first in my career. So I was the web server administrator at a, a New York based publishing company uh, where this was in the pre Google days. I was doing things like coding our you know search engine for the website and working on our privacy policy. So it got me really kind of ingrained in issues around uh, technology. After that, I went to law school uh, and as you know, kind of mentioned in the bio, went and uh, worked as a litigation associate at Chip Harden for a while, doing all the standard kind of discovery stuff that uh, that litigation associate do, including, you know, doing depositions and, and that kind of thing. But I still had kind of the technology bug. So I wanted to kind of go somewhere and really fuse the legal and technology background that I had to do something new. And, you know, I was lucky to find this role at Morgan Stanley in the compliance department uh, for information management, which was really focused on helping Morgan, you know, analyze the capture, retention, privacy requirements around all of its data on a global basis across all their business lines. So really learned a lot about financial services and learned a lot more about how kind of technology intersects with compliance and tech technology intersects with financial services. So yeah, I worked on everything there from, uh, you know, electronic messaging applications to social media, to voice recording straight through to, uh, you know, managing boxes at Iron Mountain and trading systems and HR data. So it was a really interesting experience. Um, Really loved my time there and uh, ultimately kind of switched over into the legal department um, where I was the coverage attorney for information management as Morgan Stanley kind of built that up as its own discipline. But also, you know, after being at Morgan Stanley for about seven years, um, really wanted to broaden kind of my legal chops. 
still very interested in technology, also very interested in the startup space. And so I was lucky enough to be able to join, you know, Theta Lake around uh, January of 2019, where I'm the VP of compliance and general counsel. So I've been able to kind of see that interest in technology and law and compliance, you know, throughout my career and, and really culminate in this role now. So I'm very excited. Yeah. No, that's, that's, incredibly helpful and i definitely i'm uh really uh anxious to dive into what theta lake is and kind of what it's doing now and what a lot of our listeners might be able to learn from it but before we get there you, you mentioned something there at, at that had happened at morgan stanley and i think it's worth maybe just kind of you know flushing out a, a little bit further which is that they at some point in your time there kind of shifted information management kind of into the law department and to me that starts to send a message that so much of what we're doing from kind of i guess i'll call it a legal and compliance perspective really relates to maybe viewing the way we manage information differently is is that consistent with what you saw during your time at at morgan stanley and, and do you see that kind of evolution happening elsewhere throughout the industry yeah for sure i think that's a really great great way to frame it there's really been a maturation in that space from you know kind of thinking about information in kind of silos, whether that's in business units or in you know, structured versus unstructured types of data. And I think what uh, organizations have realized over time is they really need a holistic approach to that data. Obviously, at Theta Lake, we're very concerned with kind of communications data and how that maps into that fabric. But it was a really interesting journey to be on at Morgan Stanley, which I think has a super mature program and you know, some of the smartest people I've ever worked with uh, there. So, you know, as I mentioned, I kind of started in compliance, uh, doing all the standard kind of policies, procedures, training. The first project I worked on was like a big kind of rationalization of um, how we're approaching voice recording data, which became very relevant uh, with the right. dawn of Dodd-Frank. <laughs> not, not, not to bring up any, you know, pain points for, for people or PTSD. But it, it was great to then kind of track that through switch onto the kind of legal advisory side for information management, where I was dealing with some of the same issues, but also start to see kind of uh, information management really emerge as its own discipline, work on some of the issues that are tangential around kind of transactions and information management, and, and really get to see what kind of started, I think, when I when I was in the law department, um, and which after I left became you know a very uh, kind of rigorous and and uh, you know really very kind of fully fledged uh, information management program be there as it was kind of being renewed and 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 being worked on really diligently. So yeah, yeah. it was a great experience. That's fantastic, and I, I think that does a really nice job of setting the stage now for then your move over to Theta Lake, and I guess to to just kind of think about this topic area, and I think you've done a really great job of framing it, right, and, and being able to, you know, in your prior roles, you're helping to kind of capture data across business lines, and, you know, all, you talked about rationalizing other data uh, to help make it more productive and meaningful. So, that is probably a good segue. Talk to me a little bit about kind of the origin story of Theta Lake and kind of what's its uh, thesis. You know what I mean? What's its what's its credo? What's it what's it here to help do? 
Yeah, for sure. So Theta Lake, we're a risk and compliance platform for modern digital communications. And really what that means is our co-founders, uh, Devin Redmond and Rich Sutton, had worked for a long time, were serial entrepreneurs in the kind of compliance and security space, you know, worked a lot on kind of social media technology and compliance and other kind of enterprise technology roles. And began to see around the kind of 2016 timeframe that the way that we were communicating was starting to shift. So it was kind of the early days of Zoom, some of the kind of later days of things like Skype and such, where these multimodal communications platforms were really starting to, to take off and become popular, where you had these integrated video, chat, audio, file transfer, you know, applications that fundamentally changed the way that we were kind of interacting with each other from, from a business perspective, from a personal perspective. And as they were kind of noticing that trend, they also noticed that the compliance and security technologies to help people manage the risks inside of these platforms had not changed. So it was very much rooted in the old way of kind of, hey, we're using email, maybe we're using kind of version one chat applications, like even the Yahoo Messenger or Skype or that kind of thing, very text-based, and said, like, we know that this space is moving to a much more dynamic and uh, kind of multifaceted way of interacting. And we think that the compliance and technology or the compliance and security applications that support those modalities should change as well. And so Thetalink was really founded on, I think, that principle, being able to help organizations manage these dynamic platforms, which you know today has moved into everything from Slack to Slido, the, um, the kind of, uh, you know, meeting uh, kind of polling platform to things like Monday.com and Asana as well as all of the platforms that we use kind of day to day, whether that's Zoom or WebEx or Teams or RingCentral, et cetera. So becoming this kind of central hub to help organizations manage each step of that journey in terms of how do we make sure that, you know, we're kind of complying with relevant regulatory obligations that we're helping address risk more broadly in our organization. And we're helping business units become more productive because we can really apply, you know, very granular technology controls to these tools so yeah no i mean it, it, on the one hand it seems like it would be something that would be so demonstrably evident and necessary and something and yet at the same time obviously as the entrepreneurs and the founders of theta lake noticed there, there wasn't really a lot of other people that were providing for that solution right and, and so you know, building their company in order to help solve for that need seems so critically important given, as you articulated there, the way that we all communicate and interact with each other. You know, it's not just email, right? And like, I can still picture like, you know, as a young, young lad and still early in so early elementary school, my, my dad and the old dial up and like the old email system and like getting that thing like going, like, you know, like you got to yeah. go get its own independent generator just to get the computer up and running, right? Versus obviously even today and thinking about the different applications, which you, you mentioned a few there, 
that we communicate through. And sometimes it's not even through words, right? It can be through emojis or, you know, other types yes. of things and, and thinking about how those get captured and being, and then again, kind of, you, you mentioned it in your response, which I thought was really a great way to frame it was, uh, that the, the way people are communicating the future of the way uh, of how people are communicating is so much more dynamic and innovative than it ever has been in finding a way to capture that. So I guess, with that in mind, then talk to me, especially because in your role, right, in, in being the VP of compliance, talk to me about how this type of approach, when you think about the future of people communicating and how it is going to be more dynamic and innovative, how can uh, compliance officers and other folks out there that are going to need to accommodate that type of activity, how can that approach help compliance if we're able to capture that the, the data in a, in a uh, hopefully a, a more meaningful way. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think one of the kind of through lines throughout the kind of journey at Theta Lake, and that's certainly kind of never been more true than than this week, is there's a lot of regulatory focus on this area. So just you know, yesterday, big SEC and CFTC announcements of uh, all you know, of that. Yeah, yeah. five hundred fifty-five million dollar fines adds to the two billion that's already been right. kind of fined by them. So yeah. it is a very critical area of compliance focus right now. And I think, you know, these, the recent enforcement actions, they often get kind of labeled as the WhatsApp fines, just because that was one of the platforms that the regulators had mentioned in some of the earlier enforcements. But I think the, the way that, that I look at them is really more as like the capture fines, right? Because pursuant to, you know, SEC rule 17A4, those communications related to your business as such, it doesn't matter what platform they're taking place on. If they are relevant to your business, you're going to have to capture them. So whether it's, whether it's WhatsApp or SMS or Zoom or what have you, uh, you need to kind of capture those communications. And I think more broadly, what we're seeing is a, is also a shift in the industry to address some of the things that you mentioned in terms of the kind of non-text communications, whether that's FINRA's kind of advertising regulation FAQs that points to things like screen sharing certain types of documents or whiteboarding or Q&A or polling as things that need to be captured and retained. There's some principles-based guidance from ESMA and from the FCA around, you know, video and other types of communications that firms should kind of be reuse their kind of standard of reasonableness to, to kind of analyze whether or not they should keep them as business communication. So there's a, there's a real kind of dynamic shift in terms of the compliance focus around what's relevant, the expanding scope of what you need to capture and retain. And that's where we really try to help folks uh, with that journey. Because often, you know, that capture piece is what's causing them and their IT uh, colleagues and the business units the most pain, right? Hey, I really want to use this one platform, I really want to use this one particular feature. The way that we look at it is let's just help folks do that. Let's do it incrementally so we don't disrupt anything because that is something that we know is very sacrosanct to compliance folks is, you know, we don't want to disrupt what they're doing, whether that's like e-discovery processes or investigations processes they have built on existing technology. Let's help folks capture these things, capture all of the kind of dynamic 
modalities of these conversations, whether that's, like you said, chats with emojis and GIFs and reactions and file transfers or message edits and that kind of thing, or audio that they have to keep for Dodd-Frank or MIFID 2, you know, basically any type of media, help yeah. them do that, help them do it better, because then they will both have, you know, a kind of better record of what happened, which increasingly is, you know, emojis and such are part of that kind of official record and will really help them then understand the risks internally and help them with that kind of external uh, pressure of, of uh, the regulatory focus on the area. Yeah, that is such a, a smart take. You know, it, it sparks a couple ideas in my, in my head. And, and one of them is that, you know, one of the key things that whenever you're operating in compliance and given, and, and given the record-keeping rules, you know, uh, 2042, 38A1, et cetera, where, you know, one of the key parts of that is, you know, trying to keep the, have the record keeping be as close to the original source material as possible and, and keeping the integrity of that. And further, oftentimes, like having a legitimate audit trail of like what you can see there. And so, you know, you think about, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different systems right now. And look, I know at least uh, here at, at the law firm I work at, the two kind of communication modules that we use most often are probably Zoom and Teams. And, and inside Zoom and Teams alone, you know, there are certain features like you can delete messages, you can edit transcripts of meetings even after they've been recorded and stuff like that too, right? Where, I mean, all of that is... You know, you think about that against some of the record keeping rules and what it means, the idea that then we could have a technology or or that, again, compliance can be open to adopting different technologies that can help accommodate, like you described, that dynamic content where you have messages that get sent and then deleted or whatever else. How critically, I mean, that's it seems like such an important function to me and one that would have be not, not only then allow for some of those one-off accommodations that the business might have. But like you said, then realistically being able to provide them with, okay, well, from a compliance standpoint, here's what it's going to look like and here are where the risks lie. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we think a lot about what the pressures are on compliance and technology from that kind of auditability and, you know, kind of settings tracking perspective. So we spent a lot of time, you know, developing those types of comprehensive audit trails that give, you know, compliance officers and, and um, external supervisors transparency into, you know, hey, what was included in this conversation? The conversation will look in, in Theta Lake, at least uh, in the archive messages that we generate, exactly like it looked in the native platform. And that's that's also part of kind of the the innovation and disruption that that our co-founders were really focused on, kind of moving away from this idea that, hey, you know, you're going to send, you know, 100 email messages a day and have 50 chats. And at the end of the day, someone's going to bundle all that up into email format and shove it into your existing archive. That's just not the way that modern communication works, right? So right. we take this approach not to get too, like, technical on it, but using APIs to integrate into those platforms so that we're getting a real kind of feed of what's happening inside of those conversations with all of that rich content included, right? So our ability to ingest data with those APIs and then 
construct that chat or that telephone call or that video conference where, you know, we used a whiteboard and we chatted and I sent files and you responded with emojis. We get all that in the kind of native format in the way that it looks in the original platform because we use that kind of API based approach. And we were super lucky in our series B to have strategic investments from a lot of the leading collaboration platform providers. So Zoom and Ring Central and Cisco and Slack and Salesforce and individuals from Microsoft. So the idea behind those is that strategically we're a bit more tightly aligned with how they do product releases and how we can kind of help our customers feedback comments to them about how the platforms operate and that kind of thing. So it's been very, it's been a very positive strategy. And again, it's kind of continued to let us innovate and, and be kind of forward thinking on this stuff, because we know that again, for compliance officers and others, this isn't like a set it and forget it thing, right? Like right. Microsoft or someone might do a hundred updates to their API, you know, on a given year and being able to like nimbly um, <laughs> react to those and inform people about it and make sure that we're kind of capturing that is, is a hard part of the job. But, you know, luckily we have some great folks who are able to help with that. So it's, yeah. it everything that we do is kind of forward thinking. It's aligned to helping folks, again, kind of understand these, the compliance risks of these modern communication platforms. Yeah. Thank you for all of that additional yeah. d- detail. I think it's really helpful. What I love about it is in addition to obviously, I think being a huge benefit to compliance, which we'll talk about in a second, but like it's all that to me is also a huge benefit to the business because ultimately you've got, I mean, I know, for instance, even in some of the organizations that, you know, we help support with their compliance programs right now, you know, they have to turn off a lot of the features of those systems because right now they don't have a great way to capture those those messages in a way that's archivable, right? And that they can provide proper supervision over. And so you've got this uh, ultimately, uh, you know, a a platform from a, a compliance perspective, you know, you're able to better capture the information in the way that's a lot more meaningful and relevant, but the business gets a, a much more immersive, uh, you know, fruitful, uh, 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 productive experience, um, in being able to use all parts of the technology. Have you, have you certainly seen that with some of the folks that you've been able to work with that have started to adopt this type of framework? Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. I think that firms are kind of starting to settle in on the couple of strategic platforms that they want their folks to use for communicating. And one thing that we've seen is the more that you enable them to use those platforms and use all of the features on those platforms, the stickier they become. So a lot of those, you know, the fines and such that are, you know, happened this week and have been happening over the last couple of years, I bet that some of those scenarios are not that, you know, someone's doing something nefarious. It's just that they wanted to do something in the collaboration tool or chat tool or whatever, but they didn't have the capabilities turned on. So they turned to another platform because it was more convenient. So I think there's definitely uh, a kind of theme in terms of, you know, when we're talking to folks and, and, and listening to what they're saying is 
help us, you know, enable all the different modalities of these platforms because the stickier that the platform is, the less likely that someone is to kind of pull out their personal phone and go off channel and do something because they can do it all on, you know, pick yeah. the platform, Zoom or Teams or whatever. It just it kind of improves compliance to actually open these tools up and and really kind of harness all the productivity in there. It's uh, it can be quite a game changer. You are touching on one of my favorite topics, and I'm gonna go full compliance nerd on you here. Okay, real quick, if I can. All right. Which is yeah. that, like, the value of having really good compliance, where compliance is so often and law gets this too other other functionalities get this too but you know you're seen as a cost center solely right but in some areas like this one and the ones that you're describing that's such a perfect example of how having real a really great compliance program and building it out in the right way gives you a strategic and competitive advantage over other folks in the same space, right? Where you're going to be able to uh, keep and attract and retain top talent, right? And they're, they themselves are going to be more productive, right? In their job, in the work that they're doing for your firms. Like, man, that seems like a really good thing to be able to sell, right? From <laughs> the, the, the business side and the compliance side. Um, that's really cool. So I guess one other question, though, I, I have, and I think, look, I'll speak from personal experience. AI, on the one hand, I am absolutely amazed by it, and I'm thrilled to keep learning. And like, the more I read, the more I want to dig in. At the same time, I'm also scared of it sometimes because I don't fully understand it at all. And I recognize that there's so much you know that I still have to learn. I imagine some of our listeners might be in a similar uh, situation when it comes to AI and compliance and technology. Is this kind of approach that you're describing? right, where you're going to be able to capture information in a more dynamic way, uh, in a more innovative way, a more complete way. Is it something, is it like an all or nothing proposition, you know, or, or are you able to, you know, for some of our listeners who may be thinking to themselves, gosh, right, they just saw that recent enforcement action that came out of, you know, the 500 million. They remember the 2 billion one from last September, and they're thinking, look, we've got to do a better job of getting a handle on the way our advisors are communicating with their clients. Are there ways that they can do that uh, that might be um, less burdensome than going all in right from the jump? Yeah, for sure. And I think this is something that we see very commonly is this kind of iterative stair-step approach to kind of modern communications compliance. So, starting first with that capture layer and just kind of being able to capture all the dynamic content types that we've been talking about. You know, maybe that capture is Data Lake uh, or whatever vendor you're choosing, uh, delivering that, you know, to your existing archives so you're not kind of disrupting um, a lot of those legacy processes that I was describing. But you kind of first gain the benefit of, well, now I have the complete communication. It looks the way that it should look. Uh, and the, the regulators are going to be happy from business process perspective. We're also going to be happy because we can analyze it and do whatever else we need to. And second, it lays that foundation for in the future, kind of moving to a more 
uh, you know, sophisticated mechanism for searching your data and analyzing your data, supervising that data. So the way that we see it is, you know, starting with a, a given platform, a chat platform, let's say, capturing all those edits, deletes, emojis, reactions, file transfers, so that you have all that data bundled up and you have it all in a me in a way that can be kind of supervised. Uh, and then you kind of move into starting to actually use, you know, our platform for searching that data because, you know, in, in kind of the Theta Lake world, you can, you know, you can just enter in a money bags emoji or a moon emoji or a rocket ship emoji into the search bar and we'll pull out all the conversations that have that emoji or sure. you can search across video that's been OCR'd. So the, what I kind of emphasize there is like, it all starts with being able to capture more data and being able to have that as your baseline to be searched. Then you move into search and then you can ultimately kind of move into what you're alluding to really using AI and machine learning um, to supervise that data. So, you know, at, at Theta Lake, we have 80 or so machine learning based risk detections that look across compliance, security and privacy for particular risks. It'll look across the video, audio, chat to identify those risks and then it will surface them to the compliance officer so that they can make a determination about it. I think that's and we can get into some more of the stuff that we do around explainability. But that's one thing that I would I would stress is that, you know, using AI to make those kind of human centered processes more efficient and effective is really kind of the way to think about it. You're not kind of replacing a human. You're not making automated decisions. You're using kind of the data that you have, that communications data to understand what's happening inside of it and show it to someone so that they can make a determination because, you know, it, what might be okay in one context might not be okay in another. So using the kind of artificial intelligence to help you get there but not make the decision for you, I think is is really powerful. So that that also kind of given how much communicating we're doing now these days, <laughs> sure. it's not just the number of platforms, just the volume. Using AI just helps you cut through that, right? Because you know, no human can review millions of messages a day. So well, that's just it. And I I, I really, really like the way that that you kind of position that because to me it's also making the highest and best use of that compliance officer's time, right? Yes. And so they they can then use that technology in a way that still gives them the ability to ultimately provide their own supervision over certain types of things, but it gets them better data to work with from the jump and it and it cuts down them having to basically separate the wheat from the chaff themselves and yeah. they can get they can get kind of straight and and I like that. I mean that's a really smart approach. That that's in a lot of ways that's what compliance should be where you know look of course there's a traditional way of doing things and and you know what what i hear that i really like about what you're describing is that we we still give a significant you know there there are tried and true uh, ways of of helping to run a compliance program what this does is because of how much more pressure is now on compliance officers given the overwhelming amount of information that is going out the different ways that people are communicating and all that other kind of stuff, a compliance officer needs more tools in their tool belt in order to be able to do their job effectively. This is one way that they can do that. And it also, I think, you know, compliance, just like the investment management industry proper, 
needs to innovate. Right. I mean, yeah, just as the sure. industry, just as you know, you talked about it earlier, right? And even with the forming of Theta Lake and, and the the industry itself innovates. Those on the business side functions innovate and compliance in its role in the industry needs to make sure that it's able to continue to innovate as well. You did mention something in there that I, I had a follow-up question on, though. You talked about the machine learning and, and being able to identify certain items for, for testing. And, and we just kind of talked about that a little bit, right, where it might pick up certain words or, again, where, where you move move away from lexicon and more towards machine learning type testing. You know, could, could you maybe uh, talk about other items either where machine learning is being used to help identify items for testing or, or even if it's easier to answer that question in this way, you know, what what are some of the other practical uses for AI, right? So, because, you know, our yeah. compliance officers may be thinking to themselves, some of so I'm hoping some of the listeners are thinking to themselves right now, oh, this is great. Like, you know, we're coming up on budget season here soon, right? right? I can get some more tools at my disposal <laughs> and then I can start testing in these areas. So, may, what are some of those other practical uses? What are some when it, uh, for, for AI when it comes to testing in other areas like that? Yeah, for sure. So we think about risk kind of cutting across three main areas. The first is kind of financial services compliance. So being able to understand if a chat or some audio would contain, you know, content that would run afoul of FINRA's communications with the public rules, or if a, a, a conversation would be indicative of like a, a derivatives conversation that you need to record and monitor under Dodd-Frank, or even things like, is there collusion happening in a conversation, or are people saying, hey, you know, contact me on my personal mobile, contact me on WhatsApp, looking for these kind of change of venue conversations. So that's that's one area, those kind of specific and more generalized financial services risks that we look for. And we look for them across, again, the kind of video, audio, chat, file transfers, et cetera. So if you're, you know, gonna send a send a chat saying, let's, you know, call me on signal or something, we can capture that and and we will kind of flag that as well as, you know, something that that's that's an audio conversation. And, th and then the other kind of two domains where we think are, you know, important for organizations to understand uh, what risks are in those conversations are really in security and privacy. So from a privacy perspective, you know, given the kind of onslaught of GDPR and various, uh, you know, state privacy rules now in effect in the U.S., uh, the kind of patchwork quilt that we have, right. you know, looking for things like account numbers or social security numbers or credit card numbers, you know, whether that's spoken, shown, or shared to really help folks just understand where data might be coming or going within their organizations straight through to some of the kind of security type use cases. So malware links, discussions of, you know, private or sensitive documents, all those types of things where, you know, again, you would want to know if someone was sharing or displaying during a screen share, you know, a social media site or something that could even be around more HR type of um, risks like abusive language or bullying or you know, just kind of generally inappropriate content. So we kind of, we span all of those and, you know, just because uh, you mentioned the lexicons just really quickly, you know, 
the way that we kind of approach these risk detections with machine learning is really to understand the content in context. So, you know, a lot of the lexicons run into problems because they're very brittle, right? They're they're looking for a particular word, and when they see the word, they will you know spit it back as as a hit. Whereas we will look at the context of the conversation so that. If you say, you know, I guarantee that my niece is going to win her soccer match this weekend, that won't trigger in the way that, you know, I guarantee this ETF is going to go up a thousand percent in the next month will trigger. So there's a that's where the machine learning really helps to kind of provide a lot more effectiveness over those lexicon based approaches and become a lot more a much more powerful tool for compliance and security supervision than than some of the old ways of doing things and of of course for us being able to do that by looking at video and looking at logos and looking at things displayed on screens and in backgrounds is also super powerful uh, and something that you know a lot of the again the kind of legacy approaches to this just didn't even contemplate, right? Because when a lot of the plat- those older compliance platforms were built, you know, being able to have a video call just didn't exist. So um, right. we're trying to help solve some of that pain that, that folks might have trying to examine that type of information. And with with that response, uh, I feel like you just in a very articulate way explained what has been <laughs> one of the driving forces behind this podcast, which is also known as the Compliance in Context podcast, right? And here we're talking about content in context and right, what, what a difference it makes. But I, I think how you just described that is exactly why I think, again, be, uh, for compliance officers that are out there and thinking about the ways that their advisors are going to be communicating, the fact that those are dynamic conversations, that it's not, it's no longer just an email or a chat, right, in, in, in the written form. And there's a lot of different variations, you know, from everything kind of in between the video calls to recordings to emails to et cetera. Yeah, be, being able to then use that and, and again, kind of cut through the noise and get to the content that really matters is a much more effective way to, to really uh, help provide meaningful data and help you run your firm's compliance program. You talked about explainability. And I guess that's the other part of that, like with what we just described about, you know, separating the, the, the wheat from the chaff when it comes to the stuff that you're reviewing and the messages that you're reviewing and the content of those conversations, because ultimately, you know, being able when you, when you're going through an SEC examination, one of the most critical things you can do is be able to show the staff what it is that you're doing, right, and why the testing that you're doing is meaningful, and how the reporting that you're getting from your third-party vendors is helpful, or like all this other stuff. And so, talk a little bit about that explainability part in in how you're able to really, in a very positive way, I think, elevate the explainability of your firm's compliance program. Yeah, for sure. And I think you know, one of the things I'll kind of mention first is that we we know that kind of understanding how the regulators think about this as well as how firms uh, kind of think about this is really important. So a lot of what I spend my time on is actually talking to regulators. So, you know, across the globe, we're kind of interacting with 50 plus regulators over the course of the 
kind of four and a half years that I've been at Data Lake, we've had over 300 interactions with a lot of those folks through, you know, innovation offices and enforcement and cyber and a lot of the touch points there. So when we start to think about explainability and the usability of the data, we try to take that into consideration because we know that that's where there can be a lot of anxiety for firms, like how are we going to demonstrate this? How are we show this? Um, so we really try to inform the regulators as well. Like this is how Data Lake thinks about it. This is how the modern platforms work. Try to really be a, a kind of source for, for information for them and education. And we learn a lot from the regulators as well. So as just kind of a threshold matter, we, we try not to think about it in that kind of like siloed, like, hey, here's how we would do it. You, everyone should do it the same way. It's more kind of holistic. Um, and in terms of the explainability stuff, there, you know, kind of, you'll notice this is probably a common theme with us is there's really a kind of a spectrum or like a stair step approach that you can take with explainability uh, to ease some of that potential anxiety um, if you're kind of a first time user of, of, of AI. So, um, one of the things that we do is, you know, we've got all these great machine learning based detections that we have a, you know, dedicated data science team, you know, building these out of super smart PhD folks. But we also have the ability for folks to use their existing lexicon. So a lot of the kind of that journey of, hey, let's start capturing the, you know, dynamic data, start searching it, and then getting to that point where you're supervising it. Oftentimes, that's running the lexicon in conjunction with data lakes detection for the same thing in parallel. So, you know, that provides a level of comfort, I think, because it's super tangible, right? You can see, hey, how, how is data lake competing with a lexicon? You know, spoiler, we always do better and we often get stuff that, you know, the lexicons are going to miss, but that's just the nature of, of the game. But I think just ha having that, it gives you a bit of, um, you know, reassurance that, you know, this isn't a black box that, you know, the way that we're kind of setting up these models that the data science team sets up these models is very kind of true to the types of risk that, that folks are looking for. I think also in terms of explainability, you know, that being able to dual track is, is great. And then when you kind of get to the next step from a Theta Lake perspective, we provide these, we call them classifier audit reports, which are really kind of reports of how those risk detections are performing and, you know, can generate, you know, routine data about, you know, where those detections are hitting, where they're not hitting so that on whatever kind of basis your compliance team wants to go in every you know month or quarter, you can actually track the performance of our AI-based detection. So you can see, you know, if you have the customer complaints detection turned on, you can actually see, hey, these are the conversations that triggered it. These are the ones that didn't. We can even set up, you know, samples to say, hey, do you want to review like 5% of all the conversations that didn't hit that that detection. So it's a means for, again, like kind of providing that transparency into, you know, you have these models running. What does that mean for me as a firm? Well, we'll let you go and look at it all day, right? And there's even things in the platform built in that, you know, you get a false positive or a false negative, you can hit a button and it'll, you know, send us a note saying, hey, this is wrong because of X or Y, which is, you know, useful info. Um, yeah. So. No, that's fantastic detail, and th thank you for sharing that. It again, I, I continue to go back to some of the stuff that you're describing. To me, it is super friendly from both a business and a compliance perspective. I mean, it, it's one thing if you've got these reports that that can make 
you know, your job easier. It can make you more efficient at a tactical level. But what's really cool too, is that it also sounds like by really positioning the compliance program in this way, and that allowing this technology uh, to kind of operate, uh, as you've described it, helps demonstrate value at an even more strategic level and allows you these other kind of really high level, high value uh, uh, qualities like explainability and documentation and other stuff that's so critically important when you need to demonstrate uh, the, you know, the the functionality of your compliance program and, and its value to the firm. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. I'm going to add to that. Yeah. I was go just going to say, yeah. And, it, you know, we go a lot deeper than that as well, you know, because we know that a lot of the, the, the customers that we have are bound by a kind of overlay of different, you know, regulations. So we're very familiar with the kind of model risk review processes under, you know, the Fed guidelines under SR 117. And, you know, a lot of the kind of emerging requirements around, you know, vetting, you know, AI platforms that, you know, analyze particular types of risks. So in addition to kind of the, the very kind of user friendly, hey, this is how you can kind of make sure that Theta Lake's doing the right thing from a kind of explainability perspective. We, we also go very deep on kind of, hey, how do the models actually work and how do they kind of map to your model risk processes? And we've done that many times. And I don't want to, I wouldn't want to trivialize that or make it sound any less complicated than it is because it's a pretty heavy sure. lift to go into a lot of those reviews. And I definitely don't make, want to make it sound like, oh, you know, AI is so easy. You just come and you like turn on the switch. Uh, it would be amazing if that was true, but there's a lot of discipline behind it, whether it's, yeah, some of that model risk stuff or security due diligence. And we do like SOC 2 type 2 and PCI and TrueSight. So we're like very kind of focused in on the kind of platform architecture side that, you know, hey, we've got to build great products and get it in front of people to make their jobs easier. Part of that is actually having a lot of diligence on the back end. And, you know, our CTO built has built a bunch of companies from the ground up and is just very, very kind of keenly aware of how to, you know, kind of construct those platforms so that it's meeting and oftentimes exceeding those expectations that, that are so, you know, important to, to financial services firms because they have, you know, a lot of different eyes kind of looking at them as they begin to use some of these complex technologies. And our goal is always to kind of like make them feel as comfortable as they can across the board. So, yeah, this has been absolutely fantastic. I've got a a couple more questions to close out. The, The first one is really, you know, to tie a bow on the conversation around how AI can benefit your compliance program. And and you've given, I think, a lot of fantastic information for our listeners to really kind of digest and think about, you know, again, as they do go back and look, we're coming up on, you know, halfway into the third quarter, fourth quarters come and people start thinking about annual budgets and annual reviews and other stuff like that in ways that they can improve their compliance program. So that's all great. What's what's one thing that you would say to those compliance officers out there or, you know, something to leave folks as they are starting to consider the use of AI in their compliance programs? Yeah, I would say, you know, start slow and at a pace that works for you. And kind of like we've been talking about this whole time, 
really using that, you know, however you want to call it, a stair step approach or incremental approach to AI, you know, since it will start with the, you know, the data that you're capturing, focusing on, you know, getting all that dynamic data from communications platforms really as the foundation to building a good kind of AI platform. I, I would say that's, that's key is just, you know, you don't have to, um, kind of uh, boil the ocean or whatever the right metaphor is in terms <laughs> yeah. of, you know, you don't have to kind of do everything at once. You can really kind of parse these, parse these projects out into bite-sized pieces that will get you better over time. And I think because there's such a regulatory focus on the capture uh, at this moment, that's, that's always a great place to start. So I, I would say, you know, be open and, you know, take meaningful and, you know, practical steps to, to kind of yeah. improving your compliance program because it'll go a long way over time. Yeah, no, that's great. Well, thank you again. I greatly uh, appreciate you being so generous with your time. We tend to end a lot of our interviews having just discussed a very substantive topic like AI and compliance and technology with something a little bit more fun, right? So we're coming up here on getting kind of near the the uh, the end of summer, and you know certainly a lot of folks favorite TV shows or TV series are going to be re-kicking off here in the fall, or even maybe some movies that you're excited about coming. What's what's something that you're really looking forward to watching here as we start uh, the the fall television or movie season? Oh, this is a great question. I love it. I'm glad we can kind of end on something a bit more, you know, <laughs> like uh, human. I would yeah. say, um, I love this series on HBO called How To with John Wilson. Okay. Uh, it's all, it's very hard to describe. He basically takes a theme and kind of follows it throughout uh, a half an hour segment. A lot of it takes place in New York and it's filmed on iPhones. And he will really take you through a tour, uh, you know, if you're just thinking about, you know, like why does scaffolding exist or something like that? He will take you through a half an hour tour that kind of bends your mind and is super humorous and, and really kind of loving portraits as well. So he's been, uh, he, that show has been really, I think, uh, a, a great thing. Like from the late pandemic now, this is the last season of it. So I highly oh, recommend that. How to with John Wilson. I, I, I'm all in on that. Like how you just described it. I can already tell you that I'm gonna be all in on that. The only thing I'm now sad about is the fact that we have that show name recorded on this podcast. So now when I steal one of John's ideas and use it for a closing <laughs> segment in the future about that, like either that our history has your back or what's on my mind, some of our uh final installment segments i'm, I'm gonna have to make sure to give john the proper attribution for all of that so no, that's, love it <laughs> that's great well again mark thank you so much i greatly appreciate you taking the time to come on the show and um definitely great great conversation we'll definitely have to come back to here at some point as we continue to see uh, ai and its impact on compliance evolve so thank you again absolutely thanks so much patrick really enjoyed it the final part of today's show features another segment of History Has Your Back. As a quick reminder for some of our new listeners, this segment represents the part of the podcast where we go back in time to help us better understand the present and help define where we're headed in the future.
in today's history has your back, and in a very deliberate nod to many of the legal practitioners and compliance officers that work with private funds, we look at an ancient Japanese artistic practice known as kintsugi in the Japanese philosophy of wabi-sabi. Kintsugi is the Japanese art of putting broken pottery pieces back together with a metal powder, usually made from gold or silver, built on the idea that in embracing flaws and imperfections, you can create an even stronger, more beautiful piece of art. Every break is unique, and instead of repairing an item like new, the 400-year-old technique actually highlights the scars as part of the design. In other words, the centuries-old practices often used to mend treasured objects by beautifying the cracks, which serve as a visual record of the object's history. According to Britannica, the origin of Kintsugi is unknown. A popular story tells of the technique's development in the late 15th century when shogun Ashikaga Yoshimasa's favorite Chinese tea bowl was broken. According to the tale, he sent the bowl to China to be repaired. When it returned, it was mended with staples, a practice in which metal is inserted into drilled holes on either side of the break to keep the pieces together. Yoshimasa disliked the appearance and had Japanese craftspeople come up with a new method that was more aesthetically pleasing, hence the beginnings of Kintsugi. While it is unclear how much of the story is true, it does suggest that Kintsugi was not widespread until after the 15th century, about the time when the Japanese tea ceremony was developed. The, the practice, an intimate gathering with specialized and strict procedures, emphasizes the relationship between the host, guests, and surrounding objects, such as hanging paintings and tea utensils. In the mid-16th century, Japanese tea master Sen Rikyu and others refined the tea ceremony, establishing the wabi and sabi aesthetics, which were integral to the development of, the, of Japanese-made ceramics. Although the terms are difficult to translate, wabi generally emphasizes the beauty and simplicity, whereas sabi is understood as an appreciation for the old and rustic. Uh, the old and rusted, pardon me. When, when combined, they form the Japanese philosophy of wabi-sabi, which promotes deriving value from imperfection and impermanence. Wabi-sabi is often linked with the practice of kintsugi because, unlike other methods of ceramic repair, kintsugi does not attempt to hide the breaks, but instead draws attention to them. Fixing an object with kintsugi, a specialized and time-intensive process, not only extends the ceramic's life, but also displays its history and perhaps give the, gives the piece greater value. And in the usual custom, many of the listeners now are probably asking the question, what in the heck does any of this have to do with compliance? Well, I don't know what the future holds for the private fund industry. And there may be many folks out there who wish at least three of the five commissioners had a greater appreciation for Wabi, to keep the private fund rule simple, and Sabi, to keep an appreciation for the trial-tested rules in place for a already thriving industry. But unfortunately, the ceramic bowl representing the old private fund rules got broken. That said, with all of the incredibly bright legal and compliance minds that are out there, if there are still some imperfections in these final rules, let's work together with the SEC to highlight the cracks and ultimately build a better private fund rulemaking framework that's even more valuable than the one before it.
And that will do it for today's show. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Calfee and the National Society of Compliance Professionals, and extend a big thank you to our guest, Mark Gilman, for coming on today's show to discuss the impact of artificial intelligence and further examining the benefits and impact of AI on your firm's compliance program. Please join us again next time on Securities Compliance Podcast, where we help you put compliance in context. Please check us out on LinkedIn. You can search for Compliance and Context Podcast or on Twitter using the handle at CompliancePod. You can like us and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Or go to ComplianceAndContextPodcast.com to listen and learn more. 